0: Here we'll once again consider one of the Psalms of Ascents. If you recall, these psalms are a collection of hymns. Uh, these songs meant to be, were meant to serve God's people as they journeyed up to the temple for congregational worship. You'll notice that our passage this morning is the longest of the Psalms of Ascents, and that should tell us something about its importance. Psalm 132 says, gives the theological reasons for corporate worship. It gives the theological reasons for why these pilgrims should have confidence as they go to Jerusalem and gather with God's people. So let's now turn our attention to to God's Word. Psalm 132, verse 1. A song of ascents. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephra; we found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place, let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed, your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation, and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the gift of Your Word. Lord, we thank You for the promise of Your presence here among us. Lord, we ask that You will now speak to us in the assembly of Your congregation as we hear from Your Son. Lord, we thank You that all the Scriptures find this yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that You will illuminate Your Word and reveal the glory of Christ. Enable us to receive Your Word and to hope in your unfailing promises. Convict us of sin, and teach us to find our rest in your salvation. Transform us through the preaching of Psalm 132. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Why did you get up this morning? While most of the UAE is enjoying a restful morning in their PJs, you chose to leave the comfort of your home to come to church. Why is that? What motivated you to come this morning? Maybe it's something you don't think about much. It's something you've always done since you were young. You come because that's what Christians are commanded you to do. Or maybe you came this morning because you're in desperate need. You're burdened by a guilty conscience. You've had a hard week. And you need to be reminded of these gospel truths. Or maybe you came this morning out of your love for Christ and his people. Young people, youth, children, why did you come to church this morning? Because mom and dad told you to? Because you want to see your friends? While all these reasons can be good, there's only one ultimate motivation to gather with the saints. Friends, corporate worship is not something we just do every Sunday. It's primarily not about your spiritual growth, it's primarily, primarily not about you. At the heart of corporate worship is God Himself. We come to gather in the presence of our triune God. We come every Sunday to behold His glory in His word and to respond in worship. We gather in corporate worship because God is here. We come to meet in His presence, to meet the living God. And it is in light of this truth that the psalmist wrote Psalm 132. He sought to remind Israel of their hope in corporate worship, as they traveled to Jerusalem for that gathering. Their hope lies outside of themselves, not in what they can do, but in what God has done in the past and what He has promised to do in the future. Their hope lies outside of themselves in what God has done in the past and what God has promised to do in the future. Like Israel, we gather every Sunday trusting what God has done in the past and looking to what God has promised to do in the future. Our confidence in corporate worship are found in God's faithful King and His trustworthy Word. These are the two points for our sermon this morning. Number one, God's faithful King. And number two, God's trustworthy Word. Let's think about that first point. Point number one, we gather with confidence as we remember God's faithful king. Look again at verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob. Verse 1 begins with the psalmist standing before the Lord in corporate worship as he calls on the covenant name of God. Psalm 132 has many elements of a royal psalm concerning the king of Israel. We learn in verse 10 that the author here refers to himself as the anointed one. That's the king of Israel, the present king of Israel. In the great assembly, this king serves like the service leader in congregational worship. He calls God's people to the assembly, he gives instructions for worship, and he evokes God's presence. You can find an example of this in Second Chronicles 5 to six. You can read that later. Second Chronicles five to six: "The anointed king was called to trust in God's covenant and mediate God's presence to his sinful people. This is why the psalmist here in verse one begins worship with a prayer of invocation. He's asking the Lord to remember his favor with Israel. Friends, when we gather on a Sunday, we do not worship God in the ways that we please. Every time we gather in the name of the Lord, we come into the very presence of the Mighty One of Jacob. This is why we begin our service with a call to worship and a prayer of invocation. We do this intentionally. Like the psalmist, the service leader invokes or appeals that God remember His favor and receive our worship. As a service leader calls on the name of the Lord, you should pray along with him and ask that the Lord would shine his face upon us. Beloved, we should start every service with an eager expectation and a solemn reverence, knowing that we are coming to worship God at his throne. So the psalmist begins corporate worship with a prayer of invocation. And what does he ask the Lord? Well, look again at verse 1. He says, remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the Mighty One of Jacob. The anointed king, as he stands amidst the congregation, invokes God to show favor to them as he remembers David. He appeals to a faithful king in the past as confidence for corporate worship in the present. He appeals to a faithful king in the past, King David, as his confidence for corporate worship in the present. Now, why does the psalmist do this? Well, because of who David was. You see, David enjoyed a unique relationship with God in the Scriptures. Out of all the kings of Israel, David alone was described as a man after God's own heart. David walked with the Lord and found favor with with God. And it is out of this favor that God made a covenant with David that one of his sons will sit on his throne forever. So we'll see this later in verse 11 to 12. So a descendant of David, a king of Israel, that's the psalmist, is asking God to remember David's favor and recount David's devotion. He's asking God to remember that covenant and how God showed favor to David because of David's faithfulness to God. Now, the psalmist upholds two ways that that David was faithful to the Lord. He upholds two ways that David was faithful to the Lord. We'll see a costly vow in verse 1 to 5, and an eager fulfillment in verse 6 to 9. Let's first think about David's costly vow, how David was faithful to the Lord. Look again at verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured, How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Now in ancient Israel, vows were voluntary oaths or promises to express devotion to the Lord. It was an act of worship and involved self-denial. For instance, think about Hannah's vow to offer Samuel to the service of God. Or think about the Nazarite vow, when the Israelites would abstain for certain privileges in order to devote themselves wholly to the Lord. So a vow often involved self-denial as an act of worship. It was costly. In our passage, the king invokes God to remember David's vow to find a dwelling place. Now, why did David make such a vow Why why was he concerned about a dwelling place for God? We know that it's not because God was homeless and needed David to find him a place. David was not like a real estate agent driving around Jerusalem trying to find a suitable apartment for God to rent. No, God is the mighty one of Jacob. His dwelling is in the heavens and the earth is his footstool. As the Apostle Paul says in Acts 17, 24 to 25, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So it's not that God needed a dwelling place, he's God. Why then was David so burdened to find a place for the Lord, willing to even go through sleepless nights to find this place for God? Well, it's because David knew that the center or climax of God's promises was God's presence himself. The center of God's promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Israel was God's presence himself. What was lost in the garden... God promised to restore through the mediation of priests. In fact, it was God's presence that set Israel apart as a people. God's presence made Israel to be Israel. So listen to what Moses says in Exodus 33, verse 15. If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us? So that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. Without God's presence, Israel's is nothing. They are not God's people. If God does not dwell with his people, then they are not Israel. This was the whole point of the promised land, the law, the priest, and the sacrifices. It all centered around God's dwelling with a sinful people. You don't get to enjoy God's benefits of forgiveness without God Himself. Without God Himself. And David understood this. Now, under Saul, Israel had neglected the tabernacle. So, when David was anointed king, he vowed to make sure that God had a dwelling place in Israel according to God's law. Sinners can only approach God's presence according to God's prescribed word. So, God had given prescriptions. For how Israel should come to him and worship. How Israel can dwell in his holy presence. You see, David was concerned about God's right worship among his people. He was concerned about God's right worship among his people. Here at Grace Church, we allow God's word to govern govern or regulate our corporate worship. This is out of our devotion to God and our love for one another. Now notice... That David was willing to endure great hardship, even the loss of comfort, though even sleep, in order to fulfill his vow. He was willing to forgo sleeplessness, forgo sleep and comforts, in order to find God a dwelling place. David was not living for temporary comforts of this world, but he set his heart on heavenly things. He was willing to endure great costs for the sake of God's name and the good of others. Friends, this is a mark of a true believer. If you truly love God, you will long to dwell in God's presence. We know that in Christ, God's special presence is here in the local church. Do you long to dwell with God's people on a Sunday? Or are you more interested in getting more sleep? Do you arrange your schedule so that you you say no to your friends on Saturday night, so that you can come early and come prepared on Sunday morning? Are you willing to endure less comfort or even less sleep for the good of others? I know that the brothers who serve up front every Sunday often stay up late to serve you. Brothers, thank you for your love and devotion, for your service and care. I can't tell you how many times Pastor Alex has stayed up past his bedtime to counsel a member. Or how many hours Pastor Anan or Pastor Samson have labored to teach and preach God's words? Imitate their faith. So David made a costly vow, but he was also faithful to fulfill it. He made a costly vow, but was also faithful to fulfill it. Look again at verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in a pathratha. That's Bethlehem. We found it in the fields of Ja'ar. Now here, the psalmist references the time that David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. He's referring to the time that David brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. If you remember, the Ark of the Covenant housed the tablets of stones from Mount Sinai and were kept in the tabernacle in the most holy place. You see, the Ark was the symbol of God's holy presence. It would precede Israel as they wandered through the desert, and it would go before the army as they went into battle. But during the time of Saul, the ark was not in the tabernacle. Before Saul was anointed king, the Philistines had defeated Israel and captured the ark. So later you can go read 1 Samuel four to seven, chapter four to seven. We'll hear about that story. Now after God sent various plagues, the Philistines sent the ark back to Jerusalem on a cart. It arrived in Keriath-Ja'arim, or Ja'ar for short. So Ja'ar is a shortened form of the place it arrived. And it remained there for 20 years. So it was in Israel, but it was not in the tabernacle. It was there for 20 years until David was made king. Without the ark in the tabernacle, Israel could not properly worship the Lord. Things were not as God had commanded them or as they were supposed to be. But when David was anointed as king, he prepared a place for the Lord in Jerusalem. In 1 Chronicles 13 to 15, we learn that David assembled all of Israel to bring the ark. And as soon as the assembly found the ark, David led the ark in procession back to Jerusalem. So look at verses 7 to 9. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. So here, David is calling the gathered assembly. So they have found the ark in Jaar, and now they have an assembly, a procession, back to Jerusalem. He's calling the assembly to take the ark in a joyful procession back to the place that he prepared in Jerusalem. Now, David's petition that God would arise echoes Moses' word in Numbers 10, 34-35. Listen to what Moses said when the ark of the covenant would go out. And the cloud of the Lord was over them by day whenever they set out from the camp. And whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So this was a call to the Lord that he might defeat his enemies and bring rest to Israel. It was a call that God would defeat his enemies, he would arise and defeat his enemies and bring rest to his people. This was a prayer that the Lord would make a way for Israel to enter into God's rest. This was a prayer that God would remove every obstacle and prepare Israel for worship. Did you notice in the prayer he talks about the garments of the priest and the saints shouting for joy? Those are worship terms that would have happened in the tabernacle. In the tabernacle, the priest would be dressed in prescribed garments to make an atoning sacrifice. King David would also arrange certain Levites as they led the congregation in shouts of praise. Now, this is wonderfully illustrated for us in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 26. And because God helped the Levites who were carrying the ark of the covenant of the Lord, they sacrificed seven bulls and seven rams. David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, and also were all the Levites who were carrying the ark, and the singers, and Tinnaniah, and the leader, of the, music of the, the leader of the music of the singers. And David wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting to the sound of the horn and trumpets and cymbals and made loud music and harps and lyres. So here we get a picture of Israel worshiping the Lord as the Ark of the Covenant, God's presence, enters into the tabernacle, his resting place in Jerusalem. This is a picture we get of an obedient son who delights in the praise of the Lord. David kept his word just as he had vowed, and he brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. Now, verses 7 and 9 in our passage was David's prayer. This was what he prayed as they took the ark into the tent. But here, the psalmist seems to take David's position as his own. Remember, this son of David, the psalmist is standing before the Lord as he leads congregational worship. He's asking God to listen to his prayer because of David's faithfulness. So look at verse 10. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. It's echoing his prayer in verse 1. To remember his servant David and to hear his prayer. Now, to not turn away the face of his anointed one is for God to receive the psalmist's petition and receive his worship as acceptable and pleasing. The psalmist is pleading, O God, bless your people who are gathered in your presence. Arise, dwell with us, and enable us to worship you with shouts of praise. Listen to my prayer on account of David's faithful service to you. He looks back to God's faithful king as the reason that God should accept his prayer and his worship in in the corporate gathering. Because of God's covenant faithfulness to David, and David's obedience to the Lord, his favor with the Lord, the psalmist asks God to accept his prayers, to accept his worship. So here in verse 1 to 10, the psalmist looks back to an obedient son as the confidence that he has in corporate worship. Beloved, it's no different for us. The reason that we can gather every Sunday is because of the faithfulness of a greater David, a more perfect king. We do not come to corporate worship on the basis of our good works. We do not come thinking that we have something special to offer God apart from Him. Rather we come asking the Lord to remember His faithful King. Under the greater David we look back to Christ's work as our confidence for our gathering every Sunday. This is why all corporate worship must be centered on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Our corporate worship is grounded in the past as we ask God to remember what Christ has done. The songs we sing, our prayers, and our preaching must always be centered on the gospel of our Savior. He is our faithful King who has made a way for us to worship the Lord in His presence. So point number one, we see God's faithful King. Point number two, God's trustworthy promise. God's trustworthy promise. We gather in hope as we trust in God's trustworthy promise. So in verses 1 to 10, the anointed king invokes the Lord to remember David's devotion. Now here in verses 11 to 18, the Lord answers the psalmist by turning his attention to the future fulfillment of his promises. So in response to the psalmist's prayer, we learn of God's sure oath in verse 11 to 12 and God's sovereign choice in verse 13 to 18. Let's think about God's sure oath, starting in verse 11. Look at verse 11. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. Now remember how the psalmist concluded his petition in verse 10. He said, Do not turn away the face of your anointed one. Well, the Lord responds with a resounding answer, doesn't he? The Lord swore to David a sure oath for which he will not turn back. Yahweh will not turn back his anointed because he's made a sure oath to David. Now again, again, notice the contrasting parallel. The psalmist asks God to remember David's vow in verse 1 to 5. But God reminds the psalmist of his sure oath in verse 11 to 12. So you have David's vow in verse 1 to 5. But here you have God's oath, his sure promise in verse 11 to 12. And when God makes a promise, he will bring it to completion. As we heard earlier, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he not said, and he will not do it? Or has he spoken? And will he not fulfill it? Numbers 23, verse 19 to 20. Or listen to Psalms 89, verse 34 to 37. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne, as long as the sun before me, like the moon, it shall be established forever." a faithful witness in the skies. God has promised and he will surely fulfill it. But what was da- what was God's oath to David? We'll look again at the text. In verse 11 to 12, we see that God promises David a son who will sit on his throne forever. He promises a son that will sit on his throne forever. Here, verse 11 to 12, is a summary of God's covenant with David from 2 Samuel 7. It's a summary of God's covenant with David from 2 Samuel 7. Notice the structure of the oath. It's structured in a chiasm, or an ABA pattern. It's like a sandwich with a piece of bread on top and bottom, and with your favorite meat in the middle. Here are the pieces of bread is God's promise to David. The top piece... One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. The bottom piece, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And the meat in the middle is a condition of an obedient son. So let's first think about God's promise, this oath to David, those pieces on the top and bottom. Now we need to know that God's covenant, his promise that one of david's sons will reign forever is not isolated from redemptive history this is a this is a continuation of god's promise salvation so before the fall god made man in his image we know that he placed adam and eve in the garden where they could freely enjoy his rest and from the protection of his presence god commissioned adam to rule as a son over his kingdom. Adam was called to administer God's word over God's kingdom and lead the congregation in global worship. Yet the day Adam and Eve rejected God's rule, they were stripped of their role as vice-regents and barred from God's presence. So they could not enter into God's presence, and they were stripped of their title as vice-regents to represent God and His rule. But we see in Genesis 3.15 that God promised a son of the woman One who would undo the work of Satan and restore all that was lost in Eden. From this promise, God made a covenant with Abraham and Israel. All this pointing forward to a son, a Messiah, who would bring an eternal redemption. And it's here in God's covenant with David that we learn that that promised Messiah, that son of the woman, is a son of David. A son of David will sit on the throne forever. A son of David is the promised Messiah who will crush the work of Satan, restore what was lost, and bring God's presence among God's people forever. So that's the outer bread of the sandwich. But what about the meat on the inside of this oath? So God promises an oath to set a son of David on the throne. But right in the middle, God gives a condition that must be met. Did you notice that? Look at the text. If your sons can keep my commandment and my testimonies. The word if is a condition. So this tells us that the son of David, who will establish God's kingdom, must be an obedient son. God's promise of this Messiah must be an obedient Son, he must perfectly keep God's covenant and he must perfectly obey God's word. As Peter Gentry explains, this conditional promise is a hope in a future king who will at last be an obedient son so that the promises may be fulfilled by Yahweh. This is a hope in a future king who will at last be an obedient son so that the promises may be fulfilled by Yahweh. We know that all of God's promises will find their fulfillment, their yes and their amen, in an obedient son of David. Sound familiar? Because God has promised it to be so, the psalmist can rest assured knowing that an obedient son of David will come. He will come and reign over God's people. This is according to God's trustworthy promises. Beloved, do you find rest for your soul in God's trustworthy word? Like the psalmist, we have confidence in our corporate gatherings and in our daily pursuit of holiness because of God's faithfulness. It's because of God's faithfulness. He has promised to work in you that which is pleasing in His sight. Our worship must always be grounded in His sure word. This is why we center our corporate worship around the scriptures. It is God's word that we need for our encouragement. It's God's word that we need for strength. It's our God's word that we need for conviction and joy, assurance of pardon, so that we might worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. We need to let the scriptures expose our sin and remind us of God's faithfulness in Christ. Well, let me ask you, do you take this seriously? Do you gird up the loins of your minds and set your hope on God's promises every day? Do you work hard to remind your heart and to remind others of this great confidence? Friends, the more time you spend meditating on God's word, the more time our corporate gatherings will be full of joyful worship. So not only did God choose a son of David to be king, an obedient son, But God also chose Zion to be his dwelling place. Look again at the text, verse 13. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priest I will clothe with salvation and our saints will shout for joy. Israel can boldly gather in the temple because God has chosen it as his dwelling place. He chose Zion as the place of his rest. Everything that happened, everything that happened to David, David's vow, David's obedience, David's bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, all were under God's sovereign plan. David's faithfulness to God was not independent of God's sovereignty, but David's obedience was rooted in God's sovereign will. God chose a son of David to reign over his kingdom and Zion for his dwelling place. Before the foundations of the world, the Lord desired to make this his place forever. Now, when the psalmist speaks of God's desire, we shouldn't mistakenly compare it to ours. We know that our desires can be fickle misplaced and sinful we do not have the ability to carry out our desires as we plan but not with god everything he desires to do he does and he does it according to his perfect will We see here the psalmist looks beyond that promised land that earthly jerusalem as he fixes his eyes on that heavenly city that heavenly jerusalem We see here, it's at Mount Zion, where God will abundantly and perfectly provide for his precious saints. Look back at the text. He says, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with food, with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. These are promises of a future Zion, a heavenly city. It is that Mount Zion where God will abundantly and perfectly provide for his precious saints? It is here that God will clothe his saints with salvation and righteousness and their songs will ring before the throne forever. Is that Mount Zion that God offers eternal rest to his people? It's at Mount Zion where sin will be vanquished and death will be no more. This is at that future Jerusalem where God will dwell with his people forever. And it's here at Mount Zion that the anointed king looks forward to that day. He looks forward to that day and finds hope for his victory now. He looks forward to that heavenly Jerusalem as his hope for his victory now. So look again at the text. Look at verse 17. He says, there, there at Mount Zion, I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. You see, at Mount Zion, God promises a future day to the psalmist that he will raise up a horn of salvation for David. That's the coming Messiah. The glory of God will shine from His crown as He reigns on God's throne and rules over God's people. This is the hope of Zion before the throne of God. This is God's sovereign plan before the foundations of the world. The psalmist can lead corporate worship with hope, knowing that what God has set out to do, He will do it. There is a day coming when God will overthrow every enemy and establish His kingdom forever. Here at Mount Zion, God has promised an obedient son who will conquer his enemies and reign in Mount Zion forever. This is Israel's hope in corporate worship as they look forward to their coming king. So the point that everything the psalmist has been saying is this. If you don't get anything, this is what he's saying. The king of God will come to the place of God and bring the salvation of God once and for all. That's the promise. That's the promise here in verse 11 to 18. The King of God will come to the place of God and bring the salvation of God once and for all. And it was the hope of this promise that Israel, year after year, gathered in the assembly and worshipped, hoping and longing for the arrival of their King, longing for the coming of the Messiah, the hope of their Savior. Then one day, a son of David entered Jerusalem. He entered Mount Zion, but not with great pomp. He entered on a lowly donkey. As he proceeded to Mount Zion, the crowds cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel but the crowds did not want this lowly king. They were looking for an earthly kingdom with eyes set on worldly things. The crowds did not realize that their greatest enemy was not Rome. It was not their circumstances. It was not their jobs or what they wanted to accomplish. The greatest enemy was their sin. The greatest enemy was their sin against a holy God. So the Jews gathered in a great assembly not to worship their king, but to demand his death. After flogging Jesus, Pilate said to the Jews, Behold your king. But they cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. In that moment, Jesus did not flinch. But he came to fulfill his vow as the promised Messiah for the salvation of his people. And so just outside the gates of Mount Zion, the son of David, the king of Israel, was crucified on the cross. Even as he had a sign above him that said, the king of the Jews. See, Jesus came to be a sacrifice on the altar so that his elect people could have forgiveness and enter into God's eternal rest. This was all according to God's sovereign decree. We have God's King, Jesus, in God's place, upon accomplishing God's plan of salvation on the cross. As Peter recalls in Acts 2.23, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. You see, Jesus did not remain dead, but three days later, he rose from the dead. He defeated sin and death and he ascended to his rightful place as king of Zion, king of heaven. Friends, if you're not a Christian, then you are no different than the crowds who crucified Christ. In your heart, you love and worship yourself. You are cut off from God's presence and deserve God's sentence of death. You are cut off from his presence and deserve hell forever. But Jesus died and rose again, so that you can be reconciled to God and brought back into His presence forever. It is through the blood of Christ that you can know God as your Father and your Savior. It is through Christ that you can enjoy His rest forever. where you can rest from all your labors and works. It is in Christ alone that you find forgiveness and eternal life. So turn from your sin and trust in this obedient Son and he will surely forgive you. He says, Jesus says, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So turn and trust in Christ. Beloved, we live on this side of Calvary. We look back to the finished work of Christ as we look forward to his return. Our confidence and hope must be in Christ alone in what he has done in the past, and what he has promised to do in the future. Remember what Jesus told his disciples in John 14, verse 1 to 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have, not to- would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Until that day, Christ has given us the gift of his spirit as a guarantee. He has made us his dwelling place until your turns in glory. And as all those who are indwelled by the spirits come to Mount Zion, we gather here every Sunday. Every time we gather as those who are indwelled by the spirits, Come to that Mount Zion, that heavenly Jerusalem. This is the assembly of the saints, where Christ rules over his people with his word. It is here where we gather before the Lamb and worship God from now into eternity. It is here in this place that we find rest for our weary souls. Beloved, we can gather every Sunday knowing that our God is faithful. He has conquered your sin and offers you His rest. You can rest knowing that the One who has conquered is sovereign over every moment of your life. He has ordained every trial and every difficulty. He has planned every joy and every sorrow. He has predestined every victory and every stumble, and He will provide what you need for today, as you look forward to the day when your faith will become sight. He offers you daily rest as you long for that eternal rest in heaven. And there we'll find our home, our life before the throne. We'll honor him in perfect song where we belong. He'll wipe away every tear-stained eyes as thirst and hunger die. The lamb becomes our shepherd king. We'll reign with him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great hope we have in Christ. Teach us to daily remember your faithfulness and your promise to bring us home. Put heaven always before us, for us and keep us enduring to the very end. In Christ's name we pray.